Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. This is Great Match Generator. And welcome to Great Match Generator, where we look at great matches and see what made them great. I am Danny Kukler, and this is the first episode of 2021. Yes, the government did not fall. Yes, we are all here. Yes. Yes, it's 2021. We are all here. I'm with Greg and Matt. (laughs) We are all here still, so far. So far, so far, the world hasn't ended. 
Sure does seem to be trying, though. Yep. Greg, have any thoughts on my intro? <laughs> um, good job. <laughs> good job. Yep. Yep. Dire straits. Um, but we obviously condemn all the violence that's going on around in the world today. Um, it just sucks that to see everything going down the way it's going down. Of course. But we're here to talk about wrestling. And yes. Where violence and is okay. Where violence, where violence is okay. And we have five matches on the docket today because we're paying tribute to one good soul, Brody Lee, who passed away recently at the age of 41. So we decided to pay tribute to him by... Rewatching the Shield versus the Wyatt family from the Elimination Chamber, 2014, um, February 23rd to be exact, um, WWE. Then we watched John Cena, Brock Lesnar, Seth Rollins, 125.15, which I was at live. So you may get some live perspective, as well as some, some. Thoughts I have, um, um, watching it back, um, um, Triple H, Steve Austin versus Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho from May 21st, 2001, WWF. Then we go all the way back to 1989 to see Jushin Liger versus Naoki Sano from August 10th, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Then we go all the way back to March of 1969, the Destroyer Dick Byer versus Giant Baba. Quite a lineup. Quite a lineup. And we start in date order. So to Greg's chagrin, we're starting with Giant Baba. I got nothing against Baba. I know you have nothing against Baba, but you, you you were very lukewarm on Baba the last time. I sort of get it with Baba in this match. Um, I just um, I think older wrestling tends to be slower, so it can sometimes be a slog depending on the match. I thought I thought this match was very engaging, honestly, because I thought the Dick Byer's heel work was very... Destroyer's real name is Dick Byer. He actually got Japan's highest citizen honor, actually. Which is, which was which was very apropos, because he was a, an American. Um, yeah, and he got it for... Um, he got it for his, like, work... Uh, like his, his cross-cultural work, I believe, is is how it was worded, or something to that effect. Essentially, like his work in, uh, you know, being an American working in Japan, uh, kind of bridging those gaps uh, between cultures, between nations in this in this pop culture niche world, is is how yeah. I understand that that the reason for his award. Yes, All but he really injected personality into this match. Mm-hmm. 
Greg, what were you going to say? I was just saying, all I know is he was really funny in this match. Um, you know, Baba's good and all, but I had no idea who this Destroyer guy was going into this, and he's awesome. <laughs> he's so funny the whole time. This is just, like, classic textbook heel work, like, you'd get on day one of wrestling training. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I describe this match as like a prototype of like the classic heel versus face dynamic, um, like a boiled down version of, of what that looks like in wrestling generally. So, you know, obviously this is a match from 1969 and, and Giant Baba's involved. So we're stripping away a lot of the, the frill uh, that we might associate with wrestling sometimes. Uh, we're getting down to pretty simple relatively speaking grappling um and offense but they tell just a really easy to understand heel versus face story and i think they do that as well as just about anybody and i um i kind of agree with danny i think it's really engaging grappling for the most part for a match that goes almost 60 minutes so it's a it's technically a 60 minute draw but it pretty famously doesn't actually go the 60 minutes um, for a match that goes almost 60 minutes, I don't think it's it doesn't drag that much to me personally. Uh, you really see them kind of elevate the the action and uh, the counters and the speed as they go. And when you look at these two guys, you do not think that they are going to have the athleticism to do what they're doing at the like 50 minute mark. Uh, but I think they really are. Just, you know, this is probably their either man's most impressive performance, but an all-time performance by Destroyer. Absolutely, like really funny, um, jaw jacking at the referee, jaw jacking at Baba. Uh, you know, he's using the the every heel trick in the book, and I think he does bring a lot of personality to a match that um, you know Baba Baba brings his his Baba ness for lack of a better term, but yeah, Baba ness. But Destroyer, I think, helps translate that a little bit to a broader audience. I think, you know, I can see this match, even though it's a little longer, being maybe easier to get into if you've never watched, like, Giant Baba, for example. If you've never watched him, I think this match is probably easier to get into than uh, the Billy Robinson match you all watched a while back. But um, I love both matches. I actually think both of them are all-time classics. But this one's probably a little bit more translatable to a broader audience is my take. Yeah, this one was a little easier to digest than the Billy Robinson match um, to me because just the heel work was very engaging um, and the chain wrestling early really led to something, um, mm-hmm. which I thought the arm work early on led to ba- Baba um, sell- selling off the arm really mm-hmm. well, which and- I appreciated it. And I really like the crowd, like the the work with the crowd was got what got me into it, because um, like you'd have these relative. I mean, my only crit- criticism really is just the length. It was, a, like you said, an hour long match. And uh, that, so there was obviously these long kind of rest hold. For example, the, the stereotype is Randy Orton uh, doing a rest hold. Um, you get bored. But here, it was like, if the heel was in a hold, 
everybody's like cheering and like, haha, you're getting your just desserts. <laughs> if Bamba's in the hold, everybody's like cheering him on to like, you know, fight through the pain and get out of it. And just the whole crowd was into everything. Um, when uh, Baba would like wrench a hold, they'd like cheer every single time. It was so good. Uh, I think this is like a perfect example of how a crowd can make a match. Yeah. I would also add that I think that there are good ways of doing the, the your, your classical rest holds or what we often consider rest holds. And then there are bad ways of doing them. And I think that a lot of your really high end people from the 60s and 70s that we still remember in the matches that we go back to like this one. It's a large part of it is that they're just doing basic things really well. They're grinding things in. They're adding little flares here and there, right? Like I think there was a moment in the match where Baba had like a leg, um, like a leg scissors around Destroyer's waist, and um, and he was sort of like cranking on that. He and they were he Destroyer's back was to him, right? So instead of just like sitting in that and and like, you know, pretending to squeeze tighter and tighter, he would like literally roll back and pick Destroyer up and drop him on his tailbone. Um, like yeah. it, it did this like a few times and just, you know, the little things like that. And even like just grinding in the hold, selling um, how much the struggle of putting the hold in, you know, how much struggle that takes. That stuff sets those slower moments apart a little bit. And there are people in modern wrestling who do that as well. It's, it's not just a generational thing. I don't think at all, but they do it really well here because they're depending a lot on it. That's, that's where they're telling the story. And, um, you know, one, one last, like, well, two, two really quick things while I'm thinking about them before I forget. Uh, I, I really love when Baba tries to pull destroyers mask off. I thought that was like a really cool part of the match that, that added a little bit to it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of in Lucha where you get mask rips in big time yeah. stakes matches, particularly. I think that it's just a really easy way to elevate a match pretty quickly in my book. Um, yeah. And I think you get something very similar here. And I also had not really thought of Baba in this way. Baba's really good at selling with his facial expressions. Uh, he, I think he sells exhaustion and pain and, um, struggle really well, like deceptively well in kind of how expressive he is. And I didn't, I don't think I've ever really noticed that in him before I watched this match and then I, and then I got, I got the, the desire to watch more giant Baba. So I ended up watching another Baba match after this, so a much, much shorter one, but I really found that was, that was something that he was pretty good at. So uh, those were, those are kind of things that I noticed on this watch. It's only the second time I've watched this match and, uh, but I, I really, I just, I think really highly of this match. I think it's, I think it's a genuine all-timer. I, I still think this is very good. I don't think it's an all-timer. Um, I still, I think it's a masterclass um, in basic heel face psychology. But I, I, it's hard for me to call it an all-timer, honestly. Sure. Just, just for my tastes in wrestling. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I do appreciate it. I rated it four stars. Um, Destroyer's work here was very good. Um, Baba held his end very well and I, I had to respect it. I gave the Billy Robinson match three and a half or three and a quarter. So this was a huge improvement. Um, I, I was just going to say that, uh, Destroyer really reminded me of Andy Kaufman. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and everything he did in wrestling, there was just like this over-the-topness to his antics that uh, I really feel like that kind of kindred spirits in that way. Um, I also loved the the mask ripping spot or pulling spot, I should say. Um, that was really funny. I, I wrote in my notes here, um, like it's a little thing, but he pulled it up where the mouth, mm-hmm. his nose was sticking out of the mouth hole. Yeah. And, and like the way, if you look at that, not only is that like wrenching on his nose, but his mouth is now covered and he's blind. Like it's, if you really think about it, that he's in a really bad spot at that point. So um, like, it's those little things again that, that just kind of make it. Um, I was completely confused by the ending. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what happened. It, there was, there was a, a, a win of some type, but then some cowboys came out. They restart the match. And then there was a figure four leg lock on Baba, but for some reason Destroyer was flailing and was declared the loser. Um, so it's a two out of three falls match. Baba won the first fall. Uh, Destroyer's sort of corner came in in a little bit of like a mini melee between falls, and then. Um, Destroyer has the figure four on the time limit draw happens, which again is, is didn't go the full 60. Like if you're, if you're kind of keeping track, it's, I think it's somewhere over 50, but lower than 60 minutes, but it's called a time limit draw. And, uh, and destroyer was kind of, I think selling that he's doing everything he can to, to get the submission before the time limit to tie it up, but he fails to do so. Baba wins one, nothing. Oh, I must have completely missed the in the first fall then. Um. <laughs> yeah, the first fall happens. It, it's it's actually pretty close to the end. Uh, they they go a, a quite a ways before they get to the first fall, and it's that Baba hits a kind of like monkey flip almost, like he's laying down and um, flips Destroyer over top of him, and then uh, basically basically catches him for the press. So so he gets the fall there. Okay, that's the one I saw, yeah, and um, in fact, I, I was laughing because it looked like Destroyer was complaining because he did, in fact, get his shoulders up at two, and I was like, I don't know how the ref can justify that. Yeah, it's it's a, ma- it's a match that I think is, like, supposed to kind of be riddled with these, like, questions of whether or not Destroyer really lost the match um, or, or should have lost the match. Uh, I, I don't think it's... I don't think it was by design a, a definitive match. Obviously, you, you know you get the one nothing finish in a two out of three time limit draw, which is just not so. Like, you kind of don't see that ever really. You, you, maybe you get it correctly. <laughs> What's that? Then I didn't see it all correctly. That uh, the way you just described it, it was one fall in a two out of three falls that ends in a time limit draw. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, so, you know, a, a little bit like kind of a, you know, it, it sounds kind of convoluted, but I, but sometimes I think about that, I'm like, that's actually like not that much booking of a finish compared to some modern wrestling that that's, you know, there's all kinds of shenanigans that go into to how a match comes to a close. 
ratings, I said four. Uh, so I, I give this the full five. I give it a five because I think it is um, one of the best versions of a of a style, a genre that uh, I like a lot. That and and that I think sort of gets down to the core of wrestling in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I would say that probably you know your late '60s '70s wrestling is not the first thing I turn to if I'm you know, looking for some comfort food wrestling, but I do go through phases where I really like it. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the, in a phase like that right now. I think maybe this actually kind of maybe started me wanting to look at more for a little bit, but, uh, I, I just love the story here. I think it's really intricate. I think they, they do things well. They work the crowd. This is, you know, to me calling it on the fly wrestling at, at some of its best. And they, you know, wound up keeping my attention for 50 plus minutes with, you know, a lot less in the toolbox than, you know, your modern lengthy classics. So I really love this match. I think it's, a, as, as Danny called it, a masterclass in um, psychology and heel face dynamic. And so for that, it gets it gets full marks for me. Uh, like you said, it's. Uh... A masterclass. I think that's the the perfect word for it. Um, it's not the type of match I think I would normally go to, or people like Danny would ever associate with me. Um, but there's something about it. I I actually really liked it. So I'll split the difference with you guys and and go four and a half. Um, Destroyer, he really just had my attention, like you said. Um, it and. yeah, his his antics were just so classic heel that it, it had my attention the whole time. Yeah, I, I would say I wasn't this is from Greg. I was not expecting that from Greg. <laughs> yeah, I I would say this is one of the better Destroyer performances, but this is not like uncommon. So if you like Destroyer in this, I, I would recommend. You know, there's a good bit of it on YouTube, and he's just genuinely. I think in the broader like wrestling fandom, one of the one of the like unfortunately forgotten amazing wrestlers of a bygone era. He he really his psychology is great. He's a great heel. He just he's way more athletic than he looks. Um, so this is certainly in a lot of ways his match. Project Mascaris and from '72. Yeah, and I'm not a huge Mascaris fan, but those are fun. Like he Destroyer is fantastic. Um, he's a like all timer great wrestler and i like his cowboy henchmen because yeah. they were they were like you could tell they were being the most stereotypical version of an american possible in japan <laughs> yeah like. <laughs> now to a match i really love jushin lager versus naoki sano god i love this thing yeah liger's selling through the mask. This was a masterclass in selling too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And how to sell under a hood. Mm-hmm. Because Liger's selling here is my God. When when the best selling performances I've seen on a guy with a mask next to El Generico, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, this, so start with 
Liger is wearing football pads in this yeah. match. So he's yeah. coming in with a shoulder injury. <laughs> uh, he's coming with a shoulder and arm injury. And obviously, like, that's what the entire match is built around, right? Sano goes right for it. And uh, and then you get what is commonly thought of as one of the best selling performances in wrestling from Liger. Selling the arm. Um, I think you do get, like, great body language selling. But he also just sell, like, he sells it on offense. I love when people sell the body part that hurts while they're on the attack, too. Uh, so it's not just when they're getting hurt. Right. It's everything they do in the match. And Liger, Liger just, this is this is just perfect selling, you know, for people who are real sticklers for consistency in the way people sell, I think Liger, uh, hits this one out of the park. It's, this is a great match, big, big match feel, but I think, yeah, to your point, that's, that's the kind of highlight is that, uh, Sano is ruthless on the arm and Liger sells it really wonderfully. And the other part about this match is these men want to murder each other. Yes. (laughs) These men want to murder each other. They hate each other. They want to murder each other. And, and, like, and they want to want to do it to themselves to murder the other guy. Mm-hmm. Because there were times where like both Liger and Sino were ruthless with their own bodies to murder the other guy. Yeah, my favorite my favorite part of that is or favorite example of that rather is there's a part like kind of I think it's relatively early. I think they they sort of tumble to the outside on a suplex that. Oh I, yeah, I it's the suplex to the outside. Yeah, like like it, it. I don't know if it just didn't work exactly how they wanted or what, but it kind of some somewhat messily tumbled to the outside. But then like Liger kind of makes up for it by like doing a top rope dive to the floor, I believe, where he takes a drop kick on his way down. Like so, they kind of completely mask over this uh, this fact that there was this this moment that didn't quite feel like it went exactly how it was supposed to. Didn't feel like a botch quote-unquote or anything like that but it didn't feel quite as fluid and then they just like throw themselves into each other and you're like oh yeah this we're, we're right back on track greg your thoughts all right so you know me i like all the stuff surrounding the match more than the match itself uh so I'm just going to talk about that stuff. <laughs> Basically, I love Liger. I think he's awesome. I love his costume. I love his mask. Um, Danny actually came over to watch this match with me. And we're sitting here going through Liger theme songs because they're amazing. <laughs> um, so it was just awesome. Uh, I was sitting here the whole time just wondering why Jushin Liger joined the Legion of Doom. and then. Um, wondering why he was allowed to wrestle with protective gear. <laughs> so I was I was way too focused on the shoulder pads to actually pay attention to what was going on in the match. It was a good match, don't get me wrong, but I, I was very distracted. Sure. Yeah, they they definitely. It's it's like when something like that happens in a match that you have something like that, it stands out so much, right? Like because it's yeah. not you're not used to seeing it. Um and it can be really distracting of like like to get to to not focus on the fact that he has not just like protective gear, but like a weapon. Like like he's got kind of a weapon on his body. Um but you know, it's wrestling. 
The yeah, other thing was, was, was there was, I guess, another match around a year later in 90. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's all that I could find. Like, I was looking for p- some pictures for a video I'm doing, and um, I know Danny was having trouble even finding the match for us to watch. Um, this was a good match. I don't know why it gets buried by that other match. I, uh, I guess we're going to have to check that out at some point to see why that one's kind of more notorious. Um, 90 match freaking vicious. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I prefer the 90 match by a little bit, but, you know, we'll get to star ratings in a second. You'll we'll see. I, I, I love this match as well. I think it's a, a genuine classic, but um, I, this match is an all-time selling performance. That one is maybe an all-time beating performance, and that will tend to get people's attention a little bit better. Uh, the last thing I want to say about this really quickly is I love that in this match, they don't ever feel like they're headed to the next spot. They always feel like they're struggling to do something. So even when they're running the ropes, it feels like they're running the ropes with the intention of like getting speed to hurt the other person. And nothing feels cooperative here, but it also doesn't feel it also doesn't get to a point where things get clunky. Um, so I think that they like the these are we'll talk about later. Yeah, this, this you know, they, they're great dance partners. They're they're really excellent at that. So um, I love Liger and Sano as a as a pairing. And this is definitely one of their better ones. Four and three quarters. <laughs> Same for me. Um, four and three quarters for me. I couldn't pull the trigger on the five. I really wanted to, but at the, at the same time, it was like I couldn't. I couldn't in my right mind do it. But yeah, I always kind of want both of the this one and the the ninety match to be five stars. And every time I watch it, I, I just I can't. I can't do it. I I, I have them both at four and three fourths. Um, with the other, with the 90 match being just a, a slight bit ahead of this one, but I agree, yeah. But but four and three horses also, you know, still puts it amongst probably the top one percent of matches I've ever watched. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. This one, this one is, this one puts it on the top one echelon of one one percent of matches. So this match, freaking great. Greg, what do you got? Uh, four because I was dumb and got distracted. <laughs> That's fair. It's still respectable, right? Completely fair. WWF Triple H, Steve Austin, two man power trip versus Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho, the two Canadians. We don't condone what Chris Benoit did. We're just talking about his wrestling. <laughs> of course. Um, so I did kind of look at some of the other segments from this episode just to refresh myself on where we're at in wrestling history. Um, so this is the same year as the infamous WrestleMania X7. Um, and this takes place roughly a month after that. Um, the day after Judgment Day, where I believe... Stone Cold beat Undertaker? I believe so, yes. Sounds right. And then uh, Triple H had just lost the Intercontinental title to somebody. 
Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, uh, Triple H is just down to a tag belt, and Austin is still the champ. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is also after he infamously turned heel, so he's in cahoots with uh, McMahon. Um, I but love yet, Austin. <laughs> the whole thing opens with him cutting a promo, um, and he gets interrupted by Jericho, which sets up this match. Yeah. And this is an infamous match. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because this is one of the greatest TV matches of all time, but this is also a match where one Hunter Hearst Helmsley tears his quadriceps. Yes. Uh, so I guess I'll kind of talk about it for a second. Um, I remember like watching this match live and thinking at the time, and this was before I, this was before I probably even knew what star ratings were. It's before I kind of expanded out of being like sort of a mainstream American wrestling fan, uh, or not out of that, but expanded into other um, style genres, areas of wrestling. And I remember thinking like immediately, this is one of the best matches I've ever seen. Like this was like really great and kind of logging that in my brain. And I still think that it's not a match that I think I would consider for like my top 100. Um, but it's still a match that I think holds up really well. And it's still a great just sort of up there with the best TV matches. I think, you know, as, as Greg said, uh, or Danny said, excuse me. It's just it's like just such attitude era awesomeness. Like like I actually think that attitude era doesn't hold up quite as well on, on yeah, rewatch yeah. Or, or a lot of it. Um it still has some great matches, but a lot of it's just overbooked. This, and, like this like two thousand one Malays era. Yeah. Two thousand one yeah. era is and, probably some of the best stuff the attitude era ever had. For sure. Like, right and, after WrestleMania X seven to the WWE draft. Yeah. Probably some of the best stuff the company ever did. Yeah. And I think this is a really great example of like what that era, what the entire attitude era could have been in terms of producing the in ring, the bell to bell stuff that might've held up a little bit better, uh, regardless of like all the other stuff that was going on around the, the attitude era that, you know, did maybe some of the probos don't quite look the same in 2021, but regardless, this is great. Like this is, the crowd is face melting hot for this. They, they are ready for this. And as soon as, you know, as soon as the wrestlers start coming out, you could just feel a different energy. Um, and that's really like sort of the best part of the attitude era to me. Triple H, man, say what you will about him. You know, he's, he's a divisive figure in wrestling, but nobody could deny that he is a tough son of a bitch. Um, the fact that he tore his quads and then told yeah. Jericho to put him in the lion tamer anyway, I'll... I'll never, I'll never not respect that. Um, you know, that's, that's some, that's some real tough guy stuff right there. Uh, this is great dynamic. I think it's really hard to have four people in a match moving at this speed and this pace and this urgency and not see kind of, uh, kind of seams in what they're doing and, and, um, nitpick little things where the timing is off and there's really almost none of that the the timing with everybody is spot on the saves the double teams 
everything is good and they they kind of rush a little bit into this idea that Jericho and particularly Benoit just will not be denied, right? Like this is their moment. Um, and Benoit takes that beating early on. They kind of rush a little bit into that for me, but yeah. it's also a TV match. It's, you know, that's what they have to do. That's, that's what they're given to work with. I don't think it really takes away from the match, but it might be part of why it kind of caps where it does to me. Um, it's just, really great energetic almost frenetic wrestling during parts of it that shows how good all four of these guys were uh, at the time and and just how much skill it takes to to do something like this with the timing with the execution uh, while also building the drama to those near falls later on it's it's top level stuff and particularly if this is your cup of tea like if this era of the WWE is kind of what you gravitate towards this has to be one of your one of your top matches and it is the era that i gravitate towards you know that i was i always joke i was the key demographic of the attitude era um especially in the the late 90s part maybe not the the early 2000s but uh i was you know a middle school suburban white Mm -hmm. male like I wanted nothing more than to just run around and tell everybody to suck it. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I totally agree with you guys. This was like kind of the epitome of what that was. And what's interesting is I can watch this match now in my early thirties and um, I can look, I, I can like say, wow, if this was on TV right now, I probably wouldn't like it. It's, it's overbooked. It's convoluted. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it's just too much almost. Um, but like at the time, it's such a sign of the times um, yeah. because th- this could only have happened then um, because just it all does kind of work. My only criticism is just, and, and I would never have noticed this as a middle school kid. I probably would have loved it, actually. Is way too much Earl Hebner. It's <laughs> um, too much of, not, not even too much of him, but too much of him being oblivious. Like, I'm sitting there screaming, like, you dope. Like, this isn't even a functioning adult at this point, <laughs> let alone an official with authority. Like, <laughs> but... But as a kid, I never would have made that kind of connection like to incompetence. Um, I would have just thought it was funny. So it, it, it worked in the time. It worked for the audience. It It is everything the Attitude Era, like you said, could have and should have and was. Um, it, it, I actually completely forgot watching this, that this was the one where Triple H tore his quads. I thought he was just faking the injuries really well. <laughs> no, he was yep. selling that. Zack match where Triple H tore his quad, and it's one of the greatest matches of all time. <laughs> it's hilarious. But I, I just I have to go on the heel Steve Austin is awesome rant for a second. I have to go on that rant. I don't know why he's so down on that run, man. Heel Austin is awesome. He plays that character so well. I know it didn't draw him money, but my God, he executed that character and that and that 
and that um, mystique about his him being a heel really well. Yeah, I think for me it's like I just I I, I don't think it was quite the right time to pull the trigger. But like for me, I think the like the 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 ace babyface sort of or shades of gray babyface Austin still had a little bit of, of meat on the bone. Oh and, yeah, I I totally understand. And it might have like I'm actually okay with heel Austin as a character and as like a, a an idea even, but I think it just got rushed a little bit and again maybe a little bit of a sign of the times where. Or, or maybe a sign of what was to come in Vince's brain about sort of doing things quickly rather than maybe setting things up for a little bit longer, um, a longer term payoff. But I mean, regardless, it worked out really well. And WWF was at a point like nothing could go wrong. Like they weren't like they could do it. They could do no wrong at the time. And as long as Austin was on the TV, it was people were going to tune in. So it worked out. The two man power trip stuff was was still a lot of fun. And we got we got things like this match, and actually I think some of Austin's best matches come come as a heel, so we do get a lot of payoff from yeah, it. Austin's best matches in, came as a in this era. And I feel I feel like Austin feels that way too, like exactly the way you just described it. It's not that he's down on the character or anything; it's that he was he he regrets the timing. He thought. Yeah. I think one of his quotes is actually that he could have milked more out of the babyface side. Yeah, I haven't heard him talk about it in ages. I, I need to I need to listen to his podcast again more, but because uh, I always liked it. But yeah, that sounds right based on remembering kind of him him talking a little bit about it from years right. ago. Right. Four and a half. Uh, I have the same four and a half. Um, four and three quarters. This, like I said, this was my uh. This was my era. This was my style of match. Uh, very nostalgic. Um, <clears throat> it was weird seeing Benoit. Um, again, I watched the rest of the episode, so it was weird seeing, like, there was a little part where the, the Chris's were talking backstage, hyping each other up, and they're, they're like, yeah, man, we came up in Canada together mm-hmm. through the Stu Hart Dungeon. Like, let's do this for each other in Canada. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. still feel like you. Yeah, you uh, still feel like you. Yeah. It, it's still a little bit cringy when you, you think of it. And then, of course, to see him hit the diving headbutt in the match. Um, it was just like, oh, man. <sighs> this is this is hard. But, uh, but the like I said, it, the crowd, the booking... The characters, everything about it was peak attitude era. Um, so yeah, four and three quarters. I'm not gonna go full five star, but yeah, I think Benoit matches are generally generally draw that same sentiment out of me. You know, I don't, I don't want to harp too much on like the politics of watching his matches. People have been doing that for years, and it's it's really probably not that interesting to to anybody. But it it definitely it's it's impossible for me to watch it completely void of understanding what happened uh and particularly right. how he treats his body in his matches 
um, you know, the diving headbutts and the reckless abandon. But um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's hard to deny how impressive he was at the moment and how and how he shaped so much of what was going on in wrestling at that time. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it, it's hard to say say this happened, but at the same time, um, um, it, it's hard to deny his impact. Yeah. Shield Wyatt family. Rest in peace, John Huber. First off, Brody Lee, Luke Harper. Um, yeah, real quick on um, that. Seen the Dynamite tribute episode. Go watch it. It's amazing. That is one of the best two hours of wrestling TV I've ever seen, let alone a tribute to anybody. Um, it was beautiful. Uh, all obviously thoughts and prayers go to uh, the Huber family. Uh, but yeah, that, that episode was just class. I, I totally agree with that. It's, I, I can't think of a tribute episode that I think is quite as good at being a tribute episode. And I think part of it is that dynamite did a really good job of just sort of abandoning the, for the most part, abandoning the idea that the episode was like canonical that it was that it was part of the show but rather they just sort of completely committed to like everything on this show is is a tribute um and that's in some ways a luxury of being a wrestling company in 2020 2021 but i think it allowed them to kind of just have a fun wrestling show that never lost sight of sort of why they were doing what they were doing. And it was a roller coaster of emotions. Absolutely. As I was messaging my friend the, the entire time, I was like, I'm not crying. You're crying. And uh, it was really well done. I totally agree. People should go watch it. And, and in turn, people should also go watch Luke Harper matches, Luke Harper slash um, uh, Brody Lee matches in general, because he was awesome. Yes, he was. We're talking about one today. Shield, Wyatt family. Um, oh my God, this this was awesome. This was just all six, all six men in this match are awesome. Yeah. Crowd is super hot. When was the last time a WWE crowd was hot, this hot? <sighs> It's what? tough to say. <laughs> My God. They were giving the Joe Kobashi treatment to, yeah. to to these two. These two factions. And it was freaking glorious. Shields cohesion early. Harper's dropkick was nuts. Um, love the frantic energy. I love how both teams cut off the ring. Um. Um, frantic pacing, love it. I love all the near falls. Um, didn't feel like a slog. Love the double choke slam near the end. Superman punch, and I love the f- quick finish too. Mm-hmm. 
So those were my thoughts on the match. Uh, this was about two years before I got back into wrestling. And I don't think I've ever actually seen the full entrances for either group, like as a full group. Um, so yeah, to see them back to back and the crowd reactions, like you said, was just so cool, especially after watching pandemic wrestling for the past. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think this is, I love this match for a bunch of reasons. Um, it's, I don't know that the WWE could possibly produce the kind of hype that they had for these two factions meeting one another again if they tried they just happened to have these two groups that were white hot at exactly the same time and the ability to bring them together and i like that they didn't do it in the actual chamber i thought that was some some good restraint on their part uh they could have easily contrived a way to do this in the the chamber and i I like that they didn't but yeah, there was a cage match at some point, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, but but this this like sort of first meeting between the two was it just felt so special, and I I remember it feeling special at the time. Uh, I was I was into WWE, but I wasn't following as closely as I have in other time periods. Um, but this was definitely something that, that drew my attention and made me really want to invest in, and get interested. And the other thing I think that is really impressive is how perfectly each person is used in the match. It plays yeah. to each person's strengths and weaknesses so well. So, like, look, I love Roman Reigns. I think he is an incredible wrestler. But in 2014, he was not ready to spend as much time in a ring in a multi-person match as Luke Harper was or Dean Ambrose was or Seth Rollins was. Those were more seasoned wrestlers who spent, you know, time on the indies and had um, and had a lot more experience doing these kinds of things and kind of being ring generals. And so even though Roman Reigns has all the charisma in the world and is so clearly a future superstar. And I don't, I don't think that, you know, even though, um, you know, the fans and Vince might've had different ideas about when that should have come. Um, I don't think many people like really genuinely in their hearts believe that Roman Reigns was bad at wrestling. And, no. and I think he's used so perfectly here. I mean, his presence on the outside is, is, as much a part of the action as what's going on in the ring for the most part. And then leaving him in the ring with all three Wyatt members at the end was fantastic. Roman Reigns looks like a monster. And even though the shield loses, it's, it's just perfect. It's, it's absolutely wonderful agenting. Whoever put this match together uh, deserves a medal. And I, I suspect that many of the people involved, particularly, I, I suspect uh, Luke Harper um, was involved in, in helping put this match together. I've, I've heard that that's like a knack that he had and that he often was involved in the the kind of construction of how a match would go. So I would suspect that was part of, you know, he, he had a hand in that as well. But this is just just great 
using use of the tools you have and, and everybody played their part here everybody brought a different um a different kind of ethos to the match and a different character to the match and it ends up being this kind of classic this, this really just wonderful bit of wrestling this, this six-man tag that i'm not really sure the wwe could do again if they tried and maybe it's because i don't i don't know that they were thinking in that way um, at the time this feels like the wrestlers kind of organically emerging and as as the characters that they were as the the over characters that they were to produce this yeah isn't that just always the way with wwe like they they, the only time they have good storylines is when they backwards into it like (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's definitely like my biggest it's not even a complaint it just doesn't like it's just not my style. Like I really, when things feel too polished and put together, I'm not, I, I, it loses a little bit of its appeal to me. And, you know, this kind of felt like something that was just undeniable. Like, and if they, and if they did see this coming years in advance and, and thought, and thought this through in a very traditional WWE kind of way, then good on them. And I have been fooled, but it didn't feel quite like everything else that most of what else was going on at the company, uh, the surrounding time. Um, I, the, I, did you hear <laughs> basically everything you just said is what I want to say, but, uh, Sorry. <laughs> you, great. Um, we, so we totally agree. Uh, did you hear though, to your point about Roman, uh, when he does get tagged in at one point, Michael Cole even says, there's the leader of the shield mm-hmm. and what is it? Lawler next to him goes, I thought Ambrose was the leader. And like the, <laughs> they have a little like back and forth. That's so interesting because where, whereas with the Wyatt's Bray is clearly in charge. He's the leader. He's this kind of cult leader. Um, the shield always seemed to be jockeying for position. And what, what was really amazing to me is you, I feel like you can come into this match, watch the video package right beforehand mm-hmm. as a complete non wrestling fan, or at least non WWE fan, not knowing anything about this. You could watch that video package and then watch this match and you 100% get every single character here. Every motivation, you understand why they're fighting. Um, yes, it all makes sense. That and that is just what WWE cannot do to that to this day. And I don't even think they could do it then. I think it, the only time they put it on TV is when they it was an accident when they you know just happened upon it. Um, because like you said, everybody is used so perfectly um if if luke harper did it makes sense that luke harper did you know age in this match because he shines so beautifully in his limited role he he gets all his moves off the big sidewalk slam the big boot um he plays that role perfectly um and then yeah but at, at the end like you said uh you can tell Roman's not quite ready, but he is a monster. Um, kind of like what they did with Braun Strowman a couple years ago. 
Like, have him be a world beater, but don't put a belt on him or anything. Um, so to, to have Dean be taken out into the crowd, mm-hmm. to have Seth be taken out through an announce table and leave Roman to face the whole family and still hold his own was genius booking. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, like you said, it makes Roman look like an absolute monster. And it, I just loved everything about this. I loved the storytelling. I loved how, uh, you know, it, it was so continuous. It, it was great. It was just great all around. <laughs> yeah, and, and we maybe are like, yeah, obviously we're looking at um, Luke Harper, otherwise known as Brody Lee, a little bit more in this because of the the very reason that we brought it up, right? The very reason that we bring it into this particular episode. But I I do think you see how like who he was as a wrestler, where he's not he doesn't he's never really the center of attention. Um, but he, everybody around him kind of always looks better. Everybody who finds themselves in his sphere, and I think this is really true of his career pretty broadly. I, I was I was relatively familiar with with a lot of his work on the independents. Just about anybody who ends up in Brody Lee's sphere looks better for it and and feels like a bigger deal for it. Even if you don't know who Brody Lee is, even if you don't know who Luke Harper is, um, he's he's somebody who's very much for the good of the team and very much for the good of the product. And, and I think he fills that role in the Wyatt family pretty well. The Wyatt family, I think he carried a lot of what the Wyatt family did, um, especially in hindsight, when we look back at it and we look back at sort of where everybody else has gone and what they've, what they've done since. I think he was probably, um, probably was carrying a little bit more weight than we, than we realized. But yeah, in this match, he's he's fantastic, and I think to the the point about Ambrose and Reigns is re- I think that's a really interesting point. I did not catch that, but it's a why I really don't like Michael Cole very much is I think Michael Cole beats you over the head with the story, and that bothers me. It's just, I don't like that much exposition, and you know again, kind of say what you will about uh, Jerry Lawler. But I think he I think he gets the narrative beats um, and sort of the nuances of them. And I think selling Ambrose as the leader, because um, I think he was either he either had a singles title or was going for a singles title. Uh, but was but yeah, he, he had been the U.S. title. So like early in the shield, he was the singles guy and Reigns and Rollins were the tag team. And so I think selling that was a was I think part of the broader plan for the shield. Um, so that, you know, whether that was planned or not, I have no idea. I have no idea what Vince was yelling in their ear. I have, I have no idea how they were thinking of it, but how King called that makes more sense to me. And it's more appealing to me as a fan of where the shield was at this particular time than how Cole called it. If that makes sense. Well, when I came back into wrestling, it was right at the tail end of um, setting the authority, um, like right kind of as he was leaving the, um, Triple H's sphere. Right. And, um, with that context, I kind of always saw Seth 
as almost the biggest guy because he was, you know, the champ at the time and all this stuff. He had just been money in the bank guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking at Seth as kind of the biggest name of the three. And so I, I look back at this point and the way they're playing his character, he is kind of the least of the three, uh, which is just so interesting. Because even when they kind of brought it back, what was a year or two ago, um, just for that mini reunion, Seth was kind of playing the leader. So so to go back ne- to, to this match and see, like you're saying, Dean is kind of portrayed as the leader at that point um, is really interesting. And to see him take that reign as the leader was uh, also interesting to see because he, he like in the, there was a promo earlier and he he was the main mic guy on the mm-hmm. on that promo. so he was definitely the and i think the turning point was rumble 2015 when um which actually the match we're not going to was from that event um it wasn't the actual rumble but it was the uh the uh the uh WWE Championship match, but but the Rumble 2015 where where Roman won the Rumble, um, and Philly booed Reigns out of the building <laughs> with the Rock there. Yeah, I I think to to the point brought about the like the leaders is in hindsight I really kind of believe that the WWE actually did a great job of if if we if we take out all of the narratives did a good job of of really selling them as three equals as, as there is no leader. They are like, right. they are a group of three equals that have different personalities that have th- different things they bring to the table. And I almost wonder if early on who you like, if you're watching kind of live as the shield emerge, who you thought the leader was based on who you liked the most. So I liked Ambrose the most. That was yeah. my that was my favorite from the get go, and I was familiar with Rollins from his work in Ring of Honor, but I, I didn't know anything really about Reigns. Um, and at the beginning, I was I kind of liked I liked Ambrose the most. Um, I liked Reigns a good bit. I thought or I thought uh, Rollins I liked Rollins a good bit. Excuse me. I liked Reigns, but I thought Reigns had a big future rather than like really wanting to see him much right now. And I almost wonder, like, just depending on who you like the most, who you were gravitating towards in terms of their style would depend, would like sort of dictate who you thought the leader was. Um, and then obviously fans create their own narratives. And, um, you know, when you drop in, what you see is, is going to determine a lot of that. So a lot of this might actually be, to their credit really great booking from the WWE that allowed friends to, or fans, excuse me, to fill in the blanks, if that makes sense. But it's all speculation. I mean, regardless, the shield was a, a an immensely sex, successful uh, faction that, you know, now we are enjoying the fruits of that labor. I think you just made my point a little more eloquently. Uh, what I was trying to say about the confusion over who the leader is, oh, okay. is that, is that, exactly what you just said wwe is almost letting you pick your favorite gotcha i see like there's there was a confusion because you couldn't tell who the leader was these guys are equals um and i'm actually the same as you when i when i got back into it i i looked and i could see the push and i could understand why 
Rollins and Reigns, or yeah, Rollins and Reigns were big deal title contenders, but I like Dean the best too. Yeah. And honestly, I think Reigns probably was more ready at the time that he got his, his main event push, but he just, he ran into the juggernaut that was Brian. Like, Mm-hmm. Brian was just the most over person in wrestling since Austin. You know, like he was he was transcending wrestling. People at baseball stadiums were doing the yes chant, right? It just it it was just bad timing for him ultimately. And that's kind of unfortunate. I'm the biggest Brian mark in the world. Like he's my favorite wrestler ever. But, you know, they they instead of shifting gears, they I think just tried to force it, and and I think that's correct. Because at that rumble, oh yeah, when got eliminated, that's when it all went to crap. Because because we were booing every guy. Yeah. That came out after that. Yeah, and I'm almost like I'm generally for not the shut up and like enjoy the product because I think we don't live in a a world a, a world where fandom works that way anymore, but. I am sort of of the like, look, if I don't like it, I don't have to watch it. There's plenty of wrestling. Like I don't I'm not gonna spend too much time complaining about it. But man, they brought that on themselves. <laughs> like they were in Philly. They should have known better. That they deserved every boo they got that night. Uh, because that was a bad decision. All right. Uh, Ryan got eliminated by Bray Wyatt of all people and then <laughs> And yeah, but but we're not talking about that match. We're talking uh, R- R- Rumble 2015. Same 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 event. John Cena, Brock Lesnar, Seth Rollins. Before we go, ratings on Shield Wyatt Family four and three quarters. Uh, I have it four and a half. Um, just just at the upper end of four and a half for me. Uh, I went five. This was amazing. Like I said, I feel like you can you can go in even as a non wrestling fan, knowing nothing about this, and you'll instantly understand everything. Uh, They tell such a beautiful story of like, yeah, this this uh, what I'm realizing is kind of like a boy band where you get to pick your favorite. of future super say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Superstars taking on this monster cult. It, it was just great. Fantastic. Five stars for me. Nice. I will say this. I, I tend to kind of go through phases where I like particular styles um, or, or eras of wrestling. And if I ever get really nostalgic for like mid 2010s, like, uh, like TV American wrestling, this could jump right up because this is definitely like the kind of match that I will be gravitating to. And I think it's, I think it already has aged well and it's going to continue to age really well. Yeah. It's going to age well. Yeah. Speaking of matches that don't age well, I, I'm just saying. 
this match does not age well, um, in my opinion. <laughs> and I was there live. Yeah. Um, loved this match live. I did like this match live. Um, it was an I interesting brag- Hey, Danny, I just want to brag real quick. You said you were at this event. Um, I got to go to the 2018 Royal Rumble in Philly. And oh. uh, I was in the night before. Oh, and, and, and we actually got to see a good Royal Rumble in Philly where we didn't boo everything. <laughs> hey, hey, I was there the night before where Almas and Gargano had a five star match. So it was so, I night. So we both got to see the five star. Yeah. Yep. So, well, I got to see this match, which was, I still think is very good, but. But the near falls are not as believable as youth once thought they were. Um, um, when you first watched it, and you, you, the only near falls that were believable were the F5s, curb stomps, and AAs. Mm-hmm. And that was a big problem in this match. Because you didn't think a Cena's Mishinoku driver was going to finish it. You didn't think... You didn't think a bunch of a bunch of stuff like the five knuckle shuffle or the suplexes were gonna finish it. And I thought maybe the Phoenix Flash was gonna finish it. No. It didn't finish it. <laughs> but still I thought the pacing was very well. I thought Lesnar looked like a powerhouse here. Um Um I thought Rollins trying to be the sneaky hyperfire really contrasted well with the power of Cena and Lesnar. Um, the power of both of them. And and I thought after the frog splash spot through the announce table, the pacing really halted. And J&J security halted this, the momentum too. Greg, why don't you go first on this one since I took all your points on the last match? Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Um, I feel like this match epitomized all the criticisms of modern wrestling. Um, I thought it was overbooked. I think the biggest thing is that, and I think, Dan, you were alluding to this, they just finisher spammed. Uh, yeah, finisher spammed. It, 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 and what's really fascinating was watching this in the same kind of what I'll call a card as that Baba match, where mm-hmm. you didn't see anything remotely resembling a finisher. Here, that is literally all they did was finishers upon finishers, and especially Brock Lesnar, um, that, you know, back in college, I had this amazing sociology professor and he actually talked about pro wrestling in a lecture one time and he encouraged, he said, he encouraged us. He said, I'm not a wrestling fan at all. I don't watch it, but if it ever comes here to, to Penn state, which it did, um, go see a WWF show at least once in your life. He's like, it is fascinating. It's incredible live. He he told everybody go do it. And one of his points was, these guys are superheroes. 
They'll take a move that should kill a man, and then they'll just stand right back up five seconds later. And I can see that criticism from a non-wrestling fan, especially if they watch this match. Like, it's... It kind of... I can see why people love it if this is your style, but finisher spamming is not my style. So that really took me out of it. Um, especially when you have Heyman screaming off camera at the end, right? And he's right. calling for medical attention. They bring out this stretcher, and out of nowhere, Brock is up and climbing the ropes. Like, come on. <laughs> so... Like- like, the stretcher spot is the most overdone spot in WWE. Yeah. yeah. Um, I get what they were trying to do. Um, you know, putting him through a table and making him look unbeatable and all this stuff. But, yeah, and, and it, it's, it's everything. It's from the entrance of booing Cena, the overly pushed guy that the fans don't want pushed all the way through to the finish where the monster retains his belt um, after taking 50 of everybody's finishers including two money in the bank shots to the head uh, like an interference from the other guy's goons and he still conquers all like I just like I said it's the epitome of everything wrong with the modern WWE product so uh. So I, I agree with all of that, and uh, and Craig got to get me back and take a good bit of what I was going to say. Um, so I, I co-sign all of that. I came in expecting to be the low guy on this, and I think I might be the high guy on it, which is weird. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I agree this is like bad version of finisher spamming on the whole, but I'll also make an argument that it kind of – worked yeah um, it worked. It, it did work and so, i yeah. and ahead. i and i think it worked in a way where the frantic pacing helped and the urgency helped yeah so i'll kind of give this some compliments and then immediately some criticisms the reason i say it worked is this was part of a kind of reclamation of Brock Lesnar to to sort of continue off of his, you know, he'd broken the streak by this point. Um, they were really building him up as the unbeatable monster. And the purpose of that was so that Reigns could beat him uh, at WrestleMania. And I will actually say that I think that even though everybody booed Reigns, right? Everybody was mad about it, and everybody, you know, people were not having it. And I think that was it. Was uh, was it the fast lane that year where Brian and Reigns had a match for the number one contender spot, and and Reigns yeah. won. Um, yeah. So yeah. they were they were doing what they could to kind of get to circumvent the demands of the fans this year because they'd given in to them earlier. Um, and I, and I think what ends up happening is that in the middle of the Reigns Brock match at Mania that year, it clicked. Like, I actually think it worked. And I think if you watch that match, like people love that match. 
And it's because Brock was absolutely unbeatable to that point. Brock was the the biggest, baddest monster the WWE had ever created. And he was bludgeoning Reigns during the match. Now, then they throw the curveball and Rollins comes in and, and cashes in. And I think they, again, set Reigns back. But I don't, this doesn't need to be a, a story about how Reigns keeps getting set back. But rather, that's possible because they do stuff like this where they go way over the top to build Brock Lesnar up as an unbeatable monster. Um, now, that all said, I do think it sort of gets a little eye-rolly in this match. And really, the bigger issue to me is that when Brock's not in this match, it's kind of boring. Um, oh, yeah. Oh. And that's unfortunate because I actually think John Cena's – I think John Cena and Seth Rollins are both – good wrestlers. I don't think that they were necessarily having a bad match with each other. I just think that when you juxtapose it to everything else in the match, it's, it doesn't make sense. Brock Lesnar's out. They should be frantically trying to finish the other one, not kind of casually having a match. Um, And they kind of casually had a match for what, like five, 10 minutes uh, until until Brock was ready to come back in. And that really took me out of what was otherwise, I think, kind of a pitch-perfect triple threat. They they used, yes, there was finisher spam, but if I remember correctly, most of the kickouts that were coming from Cena or Rollins were actually the other person breaking it up. Uh, or or Brock breaking it up. It wasn't – Brock was the one that was kicking out of finishers, whereas Rollins and Cena, I believe – were for the most part surviving because there was another person involved and they were making saves. So I could forgive a little bit of that stuff because that's they, my notes they, do reflect. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What was that? Just my notes do reflect that. It was almost yeah. always a breakup. Yeah. Yeah. And so I can forgive a little bit of that, but it does kind of take away from the drama when you see so many finishers and no finish. You know, then it makes it pretty clear that you're not going to get a finish on like a roll up uh, or you're not going to get a finish on a Michino driver or something like that. So I, I get that criticism. I buy it. I do think as far as that goes, this built it in, in a logical kind of way it built in the, the, the style of the time, the, the way the WWE had kind of leaned into that main event style uh, that they sometimes will, will ebb and flow towards um, over time. So it's good and bad, right? I guess it's my long way of saying it. There's good and bad here. Uh, I love, you know, this was a time when Brock was just, you know, murdering people. And I love Brock murdering people. So I loved when Brock was involved in the match. When Brock wasn't, it dropped off a cliff. It, just in terms of the logic of why and how people were doing what they were doing, I think Rollins and Cena should have both been... They should have kept up that finisher spam and trying to desperately finish while Brock was out. I don't think this idea that they take for granted that Brock is going to be stretchered away, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, everybody knew Brock was coming back in. I think, you know, that that's kind of my impression at the time and in hindsight. So Yeah, you knew Brock was getting yeah. up. So I still like it, but I also I think I'm I think I'm also with you on that like this might be this is a live match this is a match that was like really exciting in the moment and maybe a little bit like in rewatch it doesn't hold up as like a you could watch this in a vacuum comfort food kind of match 
it's funny you should say about the um <clears throat> the times when Brock was down and it was just Cena and Rollins because um not only did Cena get horribly booed <clears throat> when he came out um like in his entrance mm-hmm. but this is like peak Cena hate yeah but uh even when he goes to do the five moves of doom he, he, I think he or doesn't even. 2006 peak scene of hate. <laughs> but like he doesn't even get through the second shoulder tackle, and the crowd is letting him have it. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, we don't want to see this. Screw your five moves. Um, and and I think Rollins or J and J security, somebody breaks up <clears throat> the first attempt. And he has to go for the five knuckle shuffle, shuffle a second time, <laughs> and the crowd is just like, "Oh no, you didn't!" Like they, <laughs> so the the Cena yeah. hate is is another reason why maybe those moments felt so off, um, because the crowd wasn't giving them anything, and that's. You know, to to bring it all the way back to the current product, that's something that Cena finally acknowledged in the Firefly Funhouse match mm-hmm. was, man, I <clears throat> I leaned into that instead of, or I, I guess I, I went against it instead of leaning into it because he should have just turned heel when they're booing him. And instead, he's like almost mocking the crowd He's smirking while he's doing the five moves. He's like, yeah, I know you're booing me. I don't care. I'm going to do this. And, and that that leaning in to that, I think, was another reason that those moments felt so off. Uh, I kind of think he but I kind of think he is accepted by this point. Like it's again, it's Philly. Philly is almost like another character in this match. Right. Like this whole show. Right. Like the Philly crowd is there. ABL calls them unique. Yeah, right. Like, and and I think that Cena had by this point kind of accepted. I agree. Like, there are parts of me that wish he turned heel, but maybe in hindsight, it was better that he remained this prototype of WWE, this caricature of a caricature of uh, that WWE fans. And there are actually like they often get drowned out during this period. But there are people who are like diehard Cena fans still. Um, and then you have the like the anti-Cena fans. And the WWE did a pretty good job of actually pitting those groups against one another rather than going heel face, right? So like the punk Cena feud is amazing because it plays on a different kind of investment in wrestling than good guy, bad guy. It plays on the two different understandings of what wrestling should be. Um, and I think they, they did that with the, the little miniature Brian Cena angle leading into to their match. Um, this like, you know, this is what wrestling should be. And I actually think ultimately that benefited Cena and allowed Cena to have more great matches um, in the latter part of his career. Uh, but it also, I think to, to your point, Greg, probably takes a little bit away from this match because nobody wants Cena to win. Like there's no excitement around a Cena near fall in this match. 
Um, and in fact, there's almost and there's almost like a because they want Brock to win so bad. There's almost like an apathy to Rollins um, it, it, in some ways. And I think that takes a lot out of that middle section that is the thing that brings this down to me that, that kind of keep caps this at a really, really good triple threat match and not a, a, a great match or a, a, an elite match, which is what it is in certain sections. It's interesting you say that because um, I I just recently watched a, a top ten Royal Rumble matches of all time uh, list, and the narrator or presenter had 2018 Royal Rumble as the number one, and the reason he did is because the ending sequence with Roman and Shinsuke had the crowd terrified that Vince was going to let Roman win this rumble. And every near fall or, or near elimination uh, that Roman does, the crowd is petrified. Like, no, he's going to do it. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you have the same feeling here with those Cena falls. Every time Cena comes close to winning, the crowd's like, Oh geez, no, not again. Yeah. And it's that tension that you're right. It does kind of work in a way. Yeah. Well, and I said that people but you don't want that tension of apathy every time. Right. Uh, well, I, it's a great part of quick before I forget. I, I said that like there was no energy around Cena's falls. What I actually meant was that there was like a real negative energy, right? Like there was a, a sense of dread around Cena falls where there was the apathy to uh to Rollins falls as, as I think Danny was just mentioning but like you know that's that is actually think what the WWE did great during this period they they actually they don't they maybe don't get enough credit for leaning into this different way that fans were invested as as this new not new but a different a different kind of fandom had really long emerged but has really becoming mainstream at the time I remember being at, at WrestleMania 30 and again I was, I'm the biggest Brian Marker, you know, like he's been probably my favorite wrestler since 2002 uh, when he first started. I I think he's, I think he's absolutely fantastic. And I was at that, that WrestleMania, I knew well and good he was going to be Triple H. Like, like all logic told me that there's no way Triple H was going to beat Brian and go to the main event, that that would be, that would tank the entire show. I was on the edge of my seat the entire match. Because I also had that feeling of, oh, no, that they're going to actually have Triple H go over Daniel Bryan. And it's that like this clashing of wrestling worlds that happened during this period of WWE that is really unique. And I think they made the most of Cena during that period uh, in hindsight. To be fair, that feeling requires the death of kayfabe. Because absolutely, you need fans to to know this is all a work mm-hmm. inherently, and they're no longer guessing what's actually gonna happen for competition's sake. They're guessing what this mad eighty year old in Connecticut is gonna put on their television screen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's just as unpredictable as real life. So. Like you get just as invested in in trying to to make it all make sense in your head. 
Yeah, I think fans too often get hung up on this is how wrestling used to be, right? Like, like, well, where's the good guys and the bad guys? Where's the heels and the faces? Like, when FTR and the Young Bucks had their their match, I, I saw people just like dismissing the match because they didn't know who the faces were, right? I was like, I don't know, like. Yeah, it would be great to have a clear dynamic and invest in that way, but I don't really think that's how wrestling works anymore because wrestling works on your emotional investments and wrestling works on creating shades of gray and stakes that you don't know how things are going to go. So, look, kayfabe had to die, right? Like it was good. It was yeah, going to happen. It was going to happen one way or another. So if it happens, hats off to the WWE during this time period for finding a different way to play off of the emotional investment of the audience. And I think that's what that's what this match benefits from in parts of it, right? When it's at its hottest, that's what it benefits from. It also is why it's also one of its sort of biggest drawbacks is when Brock's not in there, they lose a lot of that. It's what made, as I said, Cena versus Punk great. It's what made Cena versus Brian a, a really weirdly hot feud. It's what made Brian's entire climb to the title Maybe the hottest thing the WWE's done since the Attitude Era, um, just in terms of, of sheer Kingston interest. Thing. I'm sorry, what did you say, Danny? It's what made Kofi Kingston's thing great. Yeah, it's what made Kofi Kingston's thing great. Like, So wrestlers are always trying to use different platforms and different ways to um, to make you question where the lines are, to make you question – is there really a plot to keep down these independent wrestlers uh, to make you question? I think like, I don't get too, too far into it, but like you see a lot of people playing with Twitter in that way, right? Like MJF yeah, is fantastic. Uh, WWE didn't really cease and desist them for the too sweet thing. Oh really? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So like there's, there's, that's what wrestlers are doing. They're trying to trick you into believing that something is real. They know, like now we all know. We're all in on on the we're all in on the the work, right? We're all in on the fact that the finish is going to be predetermined. But they want you to guess and to not know things. And I think that's a lost, not lost. It's it's talked about, but it's it's really not recognized enough how brilliant it was for the WWE to lean into that. And I think they should have done it more. I think, you know, I think I absolutely think CM Punk should have made it to WrestleMania on that premise. I think they could have, they could have built a white hot WrestleMania main event on that very premise. Um, but they didn't. And, and, but they, but they built lots of other great stuff. And that is, I think to understand why this match is both simultaneously really, really good, but also why it loses some of its luster in places, at least for for me and I think for for you two as well, um, based on what you're saying, you have to understand that dynamic is is kind of my impression of things. Yeah, and, and um, I'm such a big AEW mark right now mm-hmm. over WWE, even though I watch both, is because. They lean into the fact that, hey, look, kayfabe is dead, okay? The hidden cameras are dead. All this stuff, you, you know, we to use an analogy from another medium, uh, in, you know, in D.C., the campy good guy versus bad guy Batman is gone. We live in the dark night times, you know, where Bane makes great points and Batman's kind of a douche sometimes, like... It's not as 
cut and dry as it used to be. And you have to lean into that um, and find other dynamics that are pitted against each other. Like you said, old school versus new school with the, the Bucks and FTR. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other things going on. And AEW leans into that. They're doing it right now with the um, invasion. Yep. Uh, you can't tell if this are Kenny and Don really best friend kind of mentor mentee relationship in real life and and who's actually friends and they're they're on Twitter it seems like they are but they they, you know they're they're yelling at each other and this is happening and it it makes you guess again uh like hey we we know you're not actually good and bad guys so we still want to get worked (laughs) yeah that's the thing yeah work me work me absolutely that's what I the wrestling band and wrestling fans get so offended of their work now and i'm like i want to be worked people yeah. yeah it's i'm also big aew mark for the exact same reasons i want to be i want to be in the dark right i want to i want to be guessing and be wrong right so i don't know how many times i'll look at an aew storyline and i'm like i think it's gonna go this way i'm so embarrassingly wrong all of the time but it's fine because what they're doing is better like what they're what they're giving me is even better than that so they oftentimes end in the same place that i think they're going to end but they get there in they get there through side roads and back roads and then they twist and turn and they they ask me to invest in different ways and i think that's you know that's what modern wrestling is and that's why one of the reasons i like AEW. i get that it's not everybody's cup of tea i get that not, some people are not as invested as i am in it but you know i i won't miss a dynamite um uh, period like that's you know i even watch dark sometimes I, you know because like you said they they lean into the fact that kayfabe is dead i watch dark because i like to listen to excalibur and taz banter right like because they get to have in wrestling period i they are the best commentary team in wrestling right now period Absolutely. i hear anything otherwise they're i i watch every episode of dark for those two <laughs> yeah they're fantastic because they're having fun being a a commentary duo we know that we know that they're friends in real life or they have a working relationship. We know that they, they, they joke about work. They joke about building guys. They joke about storylines and it's fun and wrestling should be fun. Right. And you know, AEW has embraced on television, a really different dynamic to what is real and what is worked in wrestling. Um, that I think just resonates with some fans differently and, and other fans are maybe either a not interested um, or be uncomfortable with that. Um, not like in a, like, you know, they're offended, but like, it just doesn't resonate. It doesn't, it makes them, um, it makes them sort of look down on, on the product because it's not what they're used to. It's not what they're, what, what they think wrestling should look like. And that's fine. But I think AEW in the long term is is doing what's best for them and embracing a very different way of thinking about um, working fans because there are tons of I have tons of questions about like the future of AEW. Um, I have tons of questions about people like Cody Rhodes, and I think ultimately it's going to be worked into the show in a way that's really entertaining to me. Um, because I, because that company's built a lot of faith around these exact issues that we've been kind of fleshing out for a little bit. 
that it's all about the faith like you just said i used to do um wwe reviews for raw and smackdown uh on my youtube channel i stopped because i found myself fantasy booking because i hated what they were giving me yep whereas now i'm doing dynamite reviews and i'm just i'm just reviewing what's there because there's no reason for me to even attempt a fantasy book their perfection that they, they're so much better at it than me so whereas i was pretty confident i was coming up with much better things than wwe was yeah it's you know they're they're two kind of different ways of doing wrestling shows and ultimately the fans are the winners right like we're all winners because there's more good wrestling out right now even in a pandemic than we really can deal with than any you know person any sane person can deal with um, and, and that's, that's the good thing. But I do think that those, those shifts in how wrestling fans look at wrestling and how, the, and how they can be worked is noteworthy. And, and I'm glad we looked at so many kind of modernish matches today because I think it sparked a, a pretty interesting conversation. In that. Yeah, it sparked a really interesting conversation. And, and I, I, I feel like I learned a lot about like, like the postmodernist way of thinking mm-hmm. when it comes to wrestling um we sort of had a, like a postmodernist discussion about sure. like how wrestling is in and like and like and like how it sort of shifted from like this heel face dynamic to a sort of sort of banish batman versus joker sort of dynamic yeah there's just more ways to do it right i mean there's still good guys and bad guys we still you know we still love heroes like john moxley right we still we still love our our good guys and we like our bad guys but but there's more ways to build those things and more more avenues for for appealing to the audience it's just, it's just fascinating it's an interesting time yes so for so what would you rate that match we, we got far off in that discussion. Yeah, that. we did. Uh, I gave it four and a quarter. Um, I still think it's a very good match. It has five-star elements to it. Um, it just kind of evens. It kind of averages out to four and a quarter to me. Uh, I rated it the same. I, I agree with you, Matt. It, it, it has some five-star elements, but the elements I couldn't overlook, the finisher spamming, the... the, the um, just all the postmodernist stuff about it, I, I couldn't overlook it. Greg? In the immediate aftermath, like immediately following the match, I probably would have given it four stars. But the more I reflected on it, I think I'm even going to drop it down to three and a half. Okay. Uh, the finisher spamming really got to me, which is funny because that's what AEW is accused of. Um <laughs> But, yeah, just there was so much that I didn't like and especially in retrospect reminded me of my issues with the current WWE product that it it drug that down. You know, three and a half is still a good match, but definitely my least favorite of this card. Yeah, this was my least favorite. My favorite was Jushin Liger Naoki Sano. Yeah. Also, my least favorite, and obviously my favorite, was uh, Baba Destroyer. 
And Greg Faber was obviously um, um, Triple H, Wyatt. Austin <laughs> versus Benoit, and Jericho. He gave five to Wyatt um, Shield. Yeah, I like the Wyatts oh. and the Shield. Yeah. Oh, even better. Oh, yeah, he gave five to both of those. My God. My bad. So next time, we're going buried alive. <laughs> not not the 2003 version. Don't worry. We're not going that insane. We're going to the 1996 version between Undertaker and Mankind. Then we have a barn burner on our hands from All Japan 1982. Terry and Dory Funk Jr. Um, versus, versus Dan Hansen and Bruiser Brody. Um, then we have Brian Danielson versus Loki from JAPW 6-7-2002. And then we have Onita! Onita-san! Versus... Tarzan Goto, Astushi Onita making his first appearance on Great Match Generator. Excellent. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and preview that Danielson Loki match is um, one of my absolute favorite matches in the history of wrestling. It is if you've if you've been sleeping on that rivalry period or just haven't seen this match because it's from a, a lesser known indie, get on it. It is so so good. Greg, you have any thought thoughts on what you're looking forward to for next week? Uh, I don't think I'm familiar with any of this. Uh, <laughs> what you're familiar with one of the wrestlers, Brian Danielson, aka Daniel Bryan. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing uh, his early indie work. Uh, what year was the Buried Alive though that we're looking at? 1996. 96. Okay, I Under I may match. Yeah. Undertaker Mankind, which one? In Your House Buried Alive. <laughs> I believe the show was. So, plug a plug plug. I said plug a plug plug. Oh, I'll go then. Uh, so, you can find me on Twitter at MarkOutMountain. Um, as always, Come over, check out the Greatest Match Ever Forum at gweprojects.freeform.net. That's it for me. Um, You can catch me over on Twitter at PSUOptimus, but mostly I'm doing a lot of stuff over on YouTube. Um, I kind of mentioned that earlier. I am doing a review of this podcast. So I put these matches into a card. And I'm kind of reviewing it as if it was a, a TV show. And uh, so you can check that over there. I also did my own Brody Lee tribute. So we talked about that a lot today. Um, definitely check that out. It's been getting some good feedback. Um, nice. Yeah. So YouTube is Wrestling Optimus, uh, just like the Transformers characters. So check that out. Subscribe, like, do all that normal stuff. Cool. DJD Kooks on Twitter. I'm following this episode. It will be a short 20 minute audio that me and Matt did um, with the four matches we did previous week. Yeah, we had some recording trouble, so uh, Danny and I just did a did a quick recap episode. Did a quick recap episode, so that will be following this episode. 
um, on just stay stay on the episode, of course, and you guys get that as a bonus. Thank you for listening to Great Match Generator on Monco Radio and the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We we love you guys. Um, and have a wonderful week. Take care. Woohoo! <laughs> well, great match, generator. Um, this is a mini pod to make up for the major pod we had last time. We had recording issues. I'm here with Matt. Hey, how's it going? Um, Matt has become a DePato co-host. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to go over the four matches that we would have gone through the last time we were going to record. But we did record the episode. But, and I still have the files on my thing. It's just, it's going to, it would have been a pain in the ass to edit. Yeah. So, so um, we're doing a make good here. Um, the four matches are the Dangerous Alliance King Squadron from 517-92 War Games Wrestle War. Um, the uh, Masahiro Chono Rick Rude G1 Final from 92. Not the Halloween Havoc one. I had to make that joke there. <laughs> Dream Slam 92. We're doing a lot of 1992 here. Yeah, I didn't Minami, even notice that last time, but here we are. Minami Toshio Yamada versus Dynamite Kantai Man- and Mayumi Osaki um, from Dream Slam 2 92. Um, 4 11 93, actually. Um, it was a rematch from Dream Slam 92. So it ties into 1992. Yeah. And then. The Mr. Haru Mishawa Toshiaki Kawada, not from 1992, from, but from 1995. 724, 1995. A rematch from 6994. It, it's 6394. Yeah. So we normally go in order of date here. Um, so we, we are going to go into Dangerous Alliance versus Sting Squadron. And this this was just classic war games in my opinion. Um, just just the way it's presented and the way the match turned out. It was just classic war games. Um, this is my favorite war games. Um, and then Paul E looks so confident um, coming into this match. Um, um, Austin and Wyndham are working each other over. Um, Rude gets. I, I just I just have notes based off of who comes in and and, and commentary is great here. Yes. It's just a great match. What were your thoughts of, on it? Absolutely, this is pretty easily my favorite War Games. I, I think it is about ninety five percent perfection. Uh, it's as you said, like it just the look and feel of it. It's this the the gritty WCW era war games. It's the, it doesn't have as much polish on it as you know your your sort of 
if we drew a comparison to say maybe the the modern NXT version of War Games is a little bit more polished and refined and and loses a little bit to me uh, just in terms of what War Games is. But this is also what I grew up with. This is this is somewhat nostalgic for me. Uh, the sides are are just so evenly matched. There's so many big stars in this, and I think you you know you mentioned Austin and Wyndham going at it early, and they really set a tone. I mean, they're they're busted open, they're bloody, and I think that they um, serve as kind of this foundation for the match that that everybody gets to build on, and that is really key to to why this match was great. Uh, the you know the only reason that this match uh, is not something that I give five stars to or include on my top 100 list. Again, the kind of origin of, of this project more broadly is that greatest match ever project. Just kind of in the, in that context, the only reason this is not in that top 100 for me is there's just a little bit of kind of wandering around and being like a little bit, a little bit of being lost at the very end of the match. I mean, not lost, but just not quite as urgent as as so many so much of the rest of the match was and it was from guys who were coming in at the end so they didn't even have that kind of built-in exhaustion kind of kind of uh, reason for that uh it's super super nitpicky this is still an absolutely elite match it's you know it's nothing that i would have any criticisms for in any other context other than let's think about the absolute greatest matches ever because this is really top end uh, wrestling from this era and and one of my favorite um, gimmick matches to be perfectly honest and I'm I'm pretty generally I'm a little bit harder on big multi-mans like this because so much can go wrong there's so many more variables for there to be something off something awkward something where timing just isn't right or where people aren't on the same page I, I find that multi-person matches um tend to cap out at maybe the the four and three fourths or even four and a half often and this is really the top end of that this is absolutely fantastic it it, it made my list the first time i i did it 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 fell off the second time Uh, but it's still a absolutely phenomenal match should be canonical wrestling viewing for everybody yeah i agree um this this match just flies by um in my opinion and and it they just let moments breathe um, yep. naturally, and and I I just feel like the, the what takes it off for me was the unfelt a little anticlimactic, but it was still fantastic. Yeah, it's it, it, I think that point about it flying by is really a good one because it's it's not a short match. I mean, everybody's got to come in these like sort of timed intervals, and um, and it doesn't drag at all. It, it really is just pieced together so wonderfully like every the the plan that they had and the way they execute it is it's just flawless for the most part again 95 percent perfect to me and and 95 percent perfect will get you a long way yeah yeah i i rated it at four and three quarters same um really fantastic masahiro trying to recruit um eight 1292 this came in as the 319th in the 2020 project um um the last match came in at 101st the and which match i'm sorry what'd you say Matt here general rick rude came the, what, 319th yeah. as the last match 
Dangerous Alliance, Stealing Squadron just missed the top 100. Gotcha, gotcha. I didn't hear who you said just missed the top 100. Um, yeah, this this Chono Rude match, um, I'll kind of kick off and, and kick it back to you. Is I, I I really really like it. I can view it as an objectively good match and uh, an accomplishment in terms of how they slowly pulled me into being really invested in in the match but it's it's just maybe not doesn't resonate with me quite as much so what to some people might be a a real all-time great is to me just sort of this objectively very very good wrestling match uh i i think chono is an awesome wrestler i think here you definitely see he's he's he is a really good athlete. He is strong as an ox. Uh, he has great core strength, and and I think he really uses fiery. that in some. What was that? Really fiery too. Yeah, really fiery. Like he he's got all the he's got a lot of great qualities. It's just it's just not always for me, and, and that's that's a complete personal thing. Um, but even still, this match had me absolutely hooked by the end. They they earned my attention and they demand it. And I think it's a really, it's, it's kind of a masterclass in simple storytelling. They're not, you know, they're not doing that many crazy, crazy high spots. They're not, um, they're not doing a lot of flashy things. They're telling a really good wrestling story and that's all you really need sometimes. And so I think this was, was an excellent match in that regard uh, and wound up being again to me just through this, as an objective observer, attempted objective observer, uh, great wrestling, even if it's not my favorite version of wrestling. Yeah, Rude, Rude really shines here, um, in my opinion, too. Um, really milking his heel work. Um, yeah, I really thought um, he would. He really shined. I wrote it twice um, in this in my notes. Um, mm-hmm. That still work. Um, it was really good. Um, the pile driver that rude from rude really hurt my neck. <laughs> uh, um, and and th- this was really good. I echo everything he said. Um, Chono, Chono is is a very contentious wrestler in our fandom. Sure. Um, and he's very contentious because let's let's say it. You got lazy towards the end. <laughs> let's say it. Um, and. And um, but this all good Chono. It, yeah. This is what made Chono a star. You know. Absolutely. And, and his fiery aspect. He's strong as an ox. I I agree. I I really agree with everything you said. Yeah, and the thing about this match is really weird. Is like I think for whatever reason, Rude looks out of place in japan to me so whenever i see him in japan it feels like this weird kind of like dream match scenario that shouldn't happen even though like it's not a like crazy odd thing it just seems weird to me so i think that added a little bit to it this seemed like a very this has felt to me at least like a like a very special occasion even even more so than somehow the the g1 final which it was so um it had a lot going for it it's it's again a great wrestling it's nominated and it finished in the the 
with three at 300 and something that's impressive so it's got it's got people who it resonates with a lot more than me because it's a great wrestling match now we go to AJWWA, and this is the match that really shocked me um um not not thinking it wasn't going to be good but blew my mind um in how it's Minami Toyota and Toshio Yamada versus Dynamite Kentai and Mayumi Otaki for 11.93 Dream Slam 2. Um, two out of three falls. Um, it just starts off with a with a sky high power bomb, and you you knew you 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 just knew Kentai meant business, and. And it was just fast and furious. It was it was interesting. The camera work was a little erratic at times, but but it felt but it the camera work matched the erratic nature of this match. Um, Yamada took a lot of punishment in the second fall. The pacing is nuts. The dive sequences were nuts. The second fall was I already rated it at four and three quarters by the second fall. The third fall, the pacing is just the same. Um, how I, I just marveled at the pacing of everything, their flexibility, um, skill and degree of difficulty was so high. is incredible, just incredible. This is a five-star match. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I this is my favorite of the the trilogy. So these two teams have a have a trilogy of matches, and I think a lot of people prefer the first one. It's another great match. I would go watch it. Um, I watched I watched the first one before this one on the on the rewatch for our original podcast, which has obviously been a little bit now. So if I'm um, if I'm missing some of the details or forgetting them, um, that's it's because of that. But this is I, I think just one of the best tag matches I've ever seen. So what you get is Dynamite Kanze hits a, a the, the big power bomb. Um, at the very beginning, and you get sort of what is the equivalent of kind of a flash knockout. You get this surprising finisher early on that catches uh, the other team off guard, and they get a quick pin. And you then have this insurmountable uh, sort of obstacle that um, Yamada and and Toyota have to overcome. They they They've got a lot to do. They got a lot of work to do. And that second fall is just, to me, the the bread and butter of this. It's an absolutely fantastic, um, it's an absolutely fantastic fall. It's an absolutely fantastic part of the match. And that's where um, Yamada and fight their way back into it. Um, and Dynamite Kanzai and Ozaki are just so villainous in this. They are just, they're... They're like a team that's just mean, um, and, and I think that that really sets a great tone for the match and, and keeps everything. Um, it's not just a matter of the kind of urgency and action and the pacing, but there's a real kind of character to it. I think the entire time everybody's everybody's personality comes out in their offense, and they all sort of serve different purposes in the match. So... I think the dynamic here is great. I think the story is really, really good and builds off of 
uh, much of what we see in the first match. So like it's it is kind of an investment. But if you know if somebody's looking for some good wrestling to watch, that one two punch of of these two the first two uh, two out of three fall matches between these teams is a really good way to spend your time uh, if you're a wrestling fan. I also always say I think I've mentioned it before. Maybe it was in the the podcast we lost. It's when I first started watching Joshi, I, I thought it's not a good Joshi match unless you think someone has died at some point uh, because yes. of just the, the, the reckless abandon at which a lot of these women are throwing their bodies around the ring. And there are a few spots in this match that you really think like, Oh wow, that person's done. And they are the toughest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth because they just keep getting up and keep coming back. Um, so this, this match has tons of drama. I think it's a really great story. The pacing is is out of this world, but I don't think, you know, for my taste at least, they don't lose any of the 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 psychology that at least Joshi at this time period is kind of built on. Um, it might seem a little bit odd if you're kind of holding it to to other standards or, or thinking about it. I should say this: if you're thinking about this in context of maybe modern wrestling or uh, 80s U.S. wrestling or you know diff- different styles and time periods, um, I think Joshi can kind of feel like a little too frantic sometimes. But once you kind of get into that time period of of women's wrestling in Japan, there is a a pretty good consistent logic to how things work, and it's one of my favorite styles and eras of wrestling because of that and because of how much action they can fit into a match in a way that still feels like it's building a really a really solid story and i think this is one of the better um stories that we get from that period yeah i i totally agree i totally agree i get it i get it yeah this made my top 100 and will we'll make my top 100 again. This is, I, I also have this at five stars. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine any four other people um, doing this match. No. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a crazy pace that they keep. Um, Masao Kawada, 102. Um, this place 102 in the, uh, greatest match ever pull, um, the rematch of 6394, which is often referred to as the greatest match ever, number three in 2020, number two in 2019. Mm-hmm. A really fast and furious, Kawada. Oh, you broke up there real quick. You there? Greatest match ever. Um, number three in 2020, number two in 2019. It was a fast and furious start. Um, Kawada's really intense working over the eye of Misawa. I loved Kawada's stoic charisma. Um, like Kawada's attack over the eyes, Kawada's just destroying Misawa. And then Misawa, Misawa shows no mercy. They just crescendo mm-hmm. in a in a way that no one else, n- no one else knows how to do. Um, in my opinion, um, the urgency is real and fiery. Um, Misawa's first 
Clint at a comeback. It's great. Both men are great here. Head drops galore. Fever pitch. The spinning elbow was nasty. That finished it off. Five stars. This was great. Yeah, this is uh, this was a kind of I, I want to say like shocker to me and how much I enjoyed it, but it was I, I I don't know that I'd watched this match since I sort of started watching in terms of you know thinking about um, star ratings and, and all those things. I probably watched this forever ago when I first started getting into all Japan wrestling, and I was kind of blown away by this. It's I, I've heard people say that they that some people say that they like it a little better than the 6394 match. And I think I might have originally thought that was just people being hot takey and, and wanting to have something interesting to say. But I kind of could get it. I, I could understand this because um, if you think about like sort of where this pos- is positioned, right? So you brought up the, the 6394 match between the two, which is you know, considered kind of collectively as one of the greatest matches ever. And, but it also comes a month after 6995 where Kawada pins Misawa in another match that is kind of considered the greatest match ever. And if you mentioned that, I, you broke up a little bit when you were talking. So I, I'm sorry to repeat my, to, to repeat you if you mentioned it, but um, I think those are both really important, right? It's a year after Misawa defeats Kawada in this really high profile match and a month after Kawada finally gets a pin over Misawa when Kawada and Tawe are, are throwing everything at Misawa. So Kawada's got some momentum. It feels like he's got Misawa's number really early in this. Um, everything Misawa throws at Kawada, he's ready for. And Kawada really has the the advantage early on. And the weird thing is it kind of seems like Misawa doesn't have an answer except throw elbows and throw them like your life depends on it. Um, and of course he, you know, he works other aspects of his offense into the match as he goes. But I think a lot of the transitions, a lot of the fiery spots, a lot of the hope spots were built around Misawa just going to this thing that he has and knows and, and can always work and just, not going down, just being the the ace that won't die, um, and, and ultimately he's he's able to to come out on top because he he he's 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 Masawa. Like there's really just kind of no other way around it. So in a way, I I actually might like the the story and the the logic of this match better than the '94 match. I don't want to you know I, can, I don't want to again be um, too much in the moment with this because I haven't watched the 94 match in a little while, but the this is a, a really well thought out match that I think has a lot of character in how the match is built and, and, and what it's built around. Um, and I could totally understand why there are people who champion it maybe even a little bit more than that, that match from the year before. Um, I don't know that this match makes my list right now. I have it at four and three fourths and that's kind of tentative. I, I, I might star this or highlight this to, to watch again before I submit my ballot. Uh, but it's a great match. That's pretty borderline to me. It could definitely find its way onto my list. Yeah, I have this at five. Um, 
that the story in this match is just phenomenal. Right. Early is the basis of this match, and I love that. Um, and the urgency, the, the urgency, mm-hmm. it's something I, I harp on a lot. Yeah, I do too. I'm see here. It's just marvelous. Mm-hmm. And then the finishing sequences are are phenomenal, but that's why I rated it at five. Um, yeah. Um. Um. and Kawada, you can't go any better than that. Um. Yeah, they're fantastic. It's a. It's also a match that I think is like. It's probably a little bit more like legible to people who don't have a lot of experience watching um, '90s All Japan. A lot of the big epics are. A little bit longer and they're built in these sort of like nuance back and forth and that's not to say that people can't like understand that obviously but they kind of require a, a, a really yeah. a, a lot of focus I think sometimes um, to, to get the details right you can always get the big offense and the big exchanges and the finishers and so on and so forth but to really kind of get what makes them these beloved matches you've got to kind of pay attention and this match, you you can get a lot out of it by by giving it that level of attention. But I think the that overarching story of Kawada dominating early and having Masawa's number is really really easy to pick up on. And I don't even think you'd necessarily need to know much about their history to get a lot about to get a lot out of that. So you can add a lot to your enjoyment by having all this context. But this strikes me as one that is probably pretty easy to like and get into regardless of your experience watching 90s all japan or whether you know who these people are or not i agree i very much agree with that um next time next time um we have here um john cena brock lesnar seth rollins um 125 15 royal rumble which I was at um, Jushin Liger and Naoki Sano, um, 8-10-89, which mm-hmm. New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, Destroyer Giant Baba. I'm very interested in this one. Yeah, I like I that one a lot. I about Giant Baba the last time. I, I like that a lot. I get to I get to defend Giant Baba this time. You got to defend Giant Baba, JWA, nineteen sixty-nine. And then Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho versus Steve Austin and Triple H. Triple H tears his quad in this one. Ooh, does he ever? Does he ever? Yeah. And you see it in all of its glory. And then we throw a bonus match in there, not randomly generated. But Brody Lee passed away. It's on the project. Um Shield, Wyatt Family, Elimination Chamber. Um, rest in peace, Birdie Lay. Yep. Yep. Excited to talk about all those. Party of Birdie Lee to the masses. Yeah, it's you know, and and it'll be it'll be a couple weeks after his passing, and obviously, um, you know, that's not going to make it any easier for for anybody, particularly those close to him. But 
you know, it's it's a it's a good chance and reason to go enjoy some Brody Lee matches, some Luke Harper matches, and um, to to really take some time with somebody's best work. And you know, I, I often find myself, you know, when a, when a wrestler passes away, uh, diving into some of their work. And, and I did a little bit of that with Brody Lee over the last couple of days. And um, great wrestler, and this is one of his best. So I'll be looking forward to talking about that with y'all. Yeah, yeah, and this was one of his best. I, I watched it like r- right when I heard the news, and I, I it not even objectively, I rated it four and three quarters. It, it, it was it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and we won't talk about it, but I, I would suggest everybody go watch um, what what I actually believe was his his last match. Um, the the chain match with Cody is. Uh, that's that's one I, I also revisited, um, kind of yeah. thinking about matches at the end of the year, and, and that was a that's one I think is is really really good, and and the build up to that was excellent too. Some of again just some of his best work. Yeah, I, I agree. So, rest in peace, Brody. Um, plugs. Uh, yeah. So, you know, as always, you can find me at Markout Mountain on Twitter um, and then at gweprojects.freeforums.net for the greatest match ever uh, projects where we're talking about all of these matches uh, and breaking them down and having discussions and so on. Yes. DJ D. Kooks on Twitter and I am on that forum as well. <laughs> Great. Thanks for having me on again for doing this little makeup episode. I didn't want to didn't want to see our, our work go to waste. So I was happy to come and talk to you today. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.